Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Welcome to this week's episode of People First. And my guest this week is Dr. Mark Goulston, who is also a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches, which is how we got introduced. Mark coaches entrepreneurs, CEOs, chairs, and managing directors to become the best version of themselves. He's also an international keynote speaker, helping audiences to do the same. He has been the UCLA Professor of Psychiatry, or is, for 25 years, a former FBI and hostage negotiation trainer. Mark's experiences have forged and proven in the crucible of real life and high-stakes situations. He's the author and co-author of nine books, with his latest book, Just Listen, you can see it behind him on the screen there, already translated into 28 languages and becoming one of the top books on listening in the world. Wow, I can't wait to learn more from you, Mark. I know you have your own podcast, My Wake Up Call too, that I would also ask everybody to listen to, My Wake Up Call. But welcome to People First. Well, I am so looking forward to this as well. Thank you, Morag. Well, I start every episode with the same question because People First is all about the leadership journey that we are on and the importance of relationships along the way. So going back to an early relationship, you are in elementary school, your teacher is there at the front of the class, and she or he are asking you, Mark, what do you want to be when you grow up? So what was your answer back then? Well, you can, you're going to guess, well, I can see why you turned out to be a psychiatrist. I think the through line going way back is I wanted to learn to trust my gut feeling in a world that told me it was wrong. Huh. That's very profound for an elementary. I mean, like, say, tell me more. Well, I, I think it goes back to feeling that something just isn't right. Um, uh, my family really wasn't a happy home. I wouldn't say it was an unhappy home, but it was not happy. And when I would visit friends, those homes often seemed happier. Mm. And, and yet, you know, if, if I were to ask my family, oh, we live in a happy home. And, and what I realized is that what was going on is there was tension. There was fear. There was anger. You know, all of it was denied away, but I felt it. Mm -hmm. and, and when I would visit friends, it would be different. And I think part of it, and this is what I learned, and if you're listening in, I think this is important for you to learn, is underneath the anger that's coming from good people, because every one of my family, my parents and my two older brothers, are good people, what I realize is that under anger is always hurt and fear. But you don't, you don't know that there's hurt and fear because when people express anger or they're critical or call you stupid or pick on you, uh, what you're aware of is the anger. But what I learned is that in good people, and I think the majority of the world are good people, when you see them becoming angry, it's because underneath they've been hurt in some way, and they live in fear of being hurt again. And hmm. 
and and I think this is what I experienced, and I think it led me to realize that underneath a lot of people's behavior uh, that doesn't seem to be helpful is hurt and fear. Uh, but when when there's too much of it, hurt and fear uh, will cross over into frustration and anger. And I think part of the reason for that is that if you think if we are overly aware of hurt and fear, the next step could be panic. And when you panic, you're immobilized. And so I think what happens is uh, many people, including many leaders, when they're feeling hurt or fear and they're in, uh, and they're in plain view, they can't panic. So if you have the choice of being fearful or being angry, Anger at least mobilizes you, whereas fear threatens to cause you to panic. And so, mm -hmm. so this is sort of the through line of my life, that knowing that if I could pierce uh, uh, beneath the outward destructive behavior, I could often free what was going on underneath. And actually, Just Listen is the book I'm most known for, but I've written many books since then. And during the pandemic, uh, I co-authored two books. And one was called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And the other one was Trauma to Triumph. Why Cope When You Can Heal is about how, how to help yourself through anything. And Trauma to Triumph is something for leaders. And I co-authored them with this wonderful CEO of a hospital that went through a tragedy where an employee of the month killed his two supervisors oh. and himself. And Diana Handel, my co-author in both those books, she led the hospital through that and back to financial and psychological soundness. So she's one of my heroes. Mm -hmm. And I use those books to present her to the world. Uh, but in Why Cope When You Can Heal, I'll share something with you, and, and I'm not sure if you understand this, but when I was speaking to people about writing a book called Why Cope When You Can Heal, when I shared that with people that had been traumatized, especially women, because women are, are more in touch with those vulnerable feelings than men. Men really push them down. But when I would say to women who I knew had been traumatized, we're thinking of writing a book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, they would look at me and their eyes would water. And I said, what's going on? And they'd say, if only. Mm -hmm. If only what? If only I could heal. What do you mean? I cope, but I'm not the same. What do you mean? I'm not the same as I was before being traumatized. I'm tentative. I don't put two feet into anything. Mm. I'm always checking to see if it's safe. And I know exhaustion. I just don't know peace. Interesting. I, yes. I occasionally have fun, but I don't know joy. And because I cope which is better than not coping, but it's not the same thing as healing. And, it then isn't. When I, and then when I ask them, do you think you could go through it again? 
And they would look at me and straight on, right into my eyes, they'd say, absolutely not. I don't know why it didn't take me down the first time. So it's, it's interesting as I listen to that. I mean, coping is something, obviously, the British stiff upper lip. It's what we do. We cope on the inside, present that professional image on the outside. And you shared there an example, an extreme reaction as a result of the, the pandemic. But in the work that you're doing with leaders, what are some of the ripple effects that you are seeing in how people need to heal and still cope with leading at a distance, the challenges with family, maybe the loss of a loved one? What are some of the themes that are emerging in the work that you're doing? Well, you know, you've heard the term, the great resignation. Um, uh, uh, people are leaving work because they, what's happened, what, what's happened is I've, I've tried to rename PTSD for 20 years, but I gave up on it. I actually, one of my nine books is PTSD for dummies in the dummies series. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to rename it to what it really is. And what it really is, is something I call RTA, which is re-traumatization avoidance. Oh, hang on, say that again. It's what? RTA? Re-traumatization avoidance. Okay. Because anyone who's been really traumatized, who doesn't know how they survived it the first time, uh, often develops symptoms of avoiding being re-traumatized. Hmm. Uh, because if you if you picture military coming back from a war where they've just seen the horrors, why is it, at least in America, that over 20 veterans are killing themselves each day? They're not in a war zone. They're safe. What's going on? Well, everything that they push down to survive uh, and what enabled them to push it down is that is that danger triggers adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And adrenaline has a built-in pain killer. There are, there are actually pro soccer players and basketball players who can play a quarter on a broken leg because of the adrenaline. Yeah. But then when the danger goes away, the adrenaline goes away. And the insulation from everything goes away. And so it feels like it's going – everything you – pushed away and pushed down to survive, it feels like it wants to come up uh, and take you down. And so re-traumatization avoidance, the mm -hmm. way at least many veterans handle it, is they drink, they use drugs, uh, they smoke marijuana, uh, they stay away from other people socially, uh, they stay away from settings that might trigger them. Uh, that's why it's interesting, uh, the, the metaphor that I use, imagine you're a veteran and you've seen all the horrors of war and participated in them because that's what war, war does to people. And there you are, and when you're around people, you're uptight, but there you are driving in your pickup truck, happy as can be, and so you lower your guard because there's nobody around you, you're driving your car, and then a car next to you backfires. Mm-hmm. So your then, guard's down, and it feels like you want to just go through the roof because that backfiring triggers suddenly the release of all those things that you put down to survive. 
but I know that's a long tangent from the question you asked me. So what do leaders do uh, when, they, when, when their people are looking to them uh, for courage, safety, perseverance? Uh, you know, something I mentioned and you mentioned we might want to talk about is uh, I have a company, it's small, called Michelangelo Mindset. Mm-hmm. And we use the metaphor that is associated with Michelangelo, where he said, I saw the angel in the marble, mm-hmm. and I carved to set it free. Yeah. And so uh, I have an article out at Real Leaders called Michelangelo Leadership, because if you're a leader, inside your people is a desire to trust you, have confidence in you, feel safe because of how you're leading, respect you, admire you, like you, and feel inspired by you. And if you can manifest certain behaviors, they will feel that towards you. So so sadly, uh, and kind of tragically, during the pandemic, the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo, really manifested everything we want in a leader when he did debriefing sessions compared to President Trump. It's sad that, you know, his whole career has ended up the way it did. But during those debriefing sessions, if you can remember, uh, you trusted him because he told you the truth. You had confidence in him because he he told you what was being done and what was going to be done. Mm-hmm. You felt a sense of safety because he he took charge of the situation without at that time seeming to be controlling. So as a leader, you want to take charge without being controlling. So it seems to me what he was role modeling was some of the elements within Just Listen in that there was a powerful, calming, confident first impression. Here's somebody who in a world that's gone crazy and nobody seems to know their elbow from another part of their anatomy, he seems to have it under control. He delivered those messages in a way that he was listening. And then, as you say, it was a two-way conversation that left people, going back to your point, feeling emotions, feeling confident that things were under control. Absolutely. And he was approachable. Um, mm-hmm. He had a certain sense of humor. He would uh, uh, he would bring out things about his brother, younger brother, Chris Cuomo. Uh, and there was a warmth to him. Uh, you know, as I said, it's sad that his career ended the way it did when it turned out that he'd been acting the way he had been. But I think during those debrief situations, especially comparing that with President Trump, uh, he was uh, he was exactly the leader that your listeners, your the leaders who are listening in need to be. Uh, and and here here's the observable behaviors. So if you actually go to real leaders, Michelangelo leadership, you'll find it. So how do you show up where people trust you, have confidence in you, feel safe, respect, admire, like you, and are inspired by you? Uh, uh, one thing is. People want to see that you're unflappable, but present. 
So you're not a robot. I'm all. You know, you're, 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 you're calm, but you're approachable. And you seem to be knowledgeable as opposed to someone who's just making it up and just shooting from the hip. You seem to be wise. And what is wisdom is you focus on what's important and you're able to set priorities according to the reality that everyone's dealing with. Uh, you have a sense of humor in terms of uh, uh, being somewhat self-deprecating, uh, but taking the world seriously. Uh, and you're inspiring just in the fact, and, and admirable, just in the fact that you're standing up uh, and standing in yes, and being present in that crisis. So what are the observable behaviors? If those are the outcome of the feelings, the trust, the psychological safety, whatever that is engendered because of it, what are the observable behaviors that leaders, the three, top three, observable behaviors that leaders should be thinking about deliberately, both in person when we're now working a little bit in three dimensions, but also especially what can they be doing when they're working in two dimensions and through the, the Zoom camera, et cetera? Well, um, I'm just pulling these out because you asked me for three. I think they're all important. But I think being unflappable but present and taking charge. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think those are the three things because, because if you're there and you're scared, uh, you want to see someone who doesn't seem scared. Uh, but you also want someone that you can kind of relate to because if they're robotic, if they seem too academic, you might, you might say to yourself, it's not that they're unflappable. It may be that they're a little bit on the spectrum. <laughs> maybe, maybe what that is is a little Asperger's uh, that's keeping them unflappable. So you want to be able to connect and relate with them. And then uh, I think what's the third one is probably most important. They're taking charge of the situation and they keep you informed. Mm -hmm. So thank you for those. I'm thinking about it in terms of the work that my team and I are doing and how we are showing up. And it's always good to have the reminders reflected back on us as to where does our own intent misalign and perhaps cause unintended consequences through the impact of how it's coming through? Yeah, and when I coach people, and by the way, I only coach people to be the leaders described in that article. Mm -hmm. as I th because at my age, I'm focused on helping people to be the leaders that the world urgently needs. And so when I work with people, I'll, I'll say, where are some opportunities in the next week to manifest being unflappable, being present, being uh, taking charge, uh, being knowledgeable, being wise, showing a little uh, uh, humor and humility, and uh, uh, inspiring people and being gracious. And, and, and that's the sole way that I coach leaders and then when they come back, I say, grade yourself on a scale of one to 10. How'd you do? Uh, and frequently they'll say, I could have been a little more humble and gracious. Mm -hmm. And then we work on that. So what's the next opportunity? 
when you're going to be interacting with people from your organization or your company. Uh, but also, uh, I'm, I only work with people who want to grow into being these people. And here's something that I think is worth writing down. 90% of people are ready for change. Only 10% are ready to change. Oh, so that again, 90% of... 90% of people are ready for change, but only 10% are ready to change. Mm. And the way you show your readiness to change is that you will commit to a process that after the novelty wears off is painful, but it helps you to get better. Does that make sense? It does. I was busy writing that down because that really resonated for me because I think about my own aspirations to get fit yet again. And when Eric pointed out my business partner that I've been saying that for 10 years, I have been fully in that 90% of ready to change. I recognize the need for it. But that elusive 10% of being ready to make that change is still just outside of my grasp. And the way that I focus on that 10% is uh, people don't do what's important. They do what they care enough about. Mm. So it's important to me to eat healthy or healthily, whatever it is, and exercise, but I don't care enough about it to commit to it. Mm. And, and the way you show that you care about something is by your sustained commitment in action, not inactive, but in taking action that you sustain uh, through the time that you want to give it up. Okay. So in other words, what I'm hearing again is the universe through you is giving me another reminder that I need to move from aspiring athlete to perspiring athlete. But what I also heard from you, or at least what I chose to hear, when you were talking earlier about people going away and in the next week, what are the opportunities to manifest that, is it doesn't mean that I need to go and run an Ironman next week. It doesn't mean that I need to go to the gym every single day. I just need to do something meaningful every day and start building up this habit and momentum. And over time, maybe I'll do the no. Let's face it, I'm never doing an Ironman. But at least I will move from being a couch potato to a little bit more active. And we can do the same with our own leadership presence. It's being in the moment, as you talked about earlier on, and being conscious around, do I need to communicate a sense of urgency? Or do I need to present a, an oasis of calm and that we have all the time in the world, whether that's true or not, so that the team that are around me can get their head and emotions in order to then align and move forward together. Absolutely. I, I, let me share another anecdote, which mm. I, I learned this from a fellow named Bob Eckert when he was the CEO of Mattel. And I asked him what was his top leadership lesson. And he said that before he was at Mattel, he was at Kraft Foods. And Kraft Foods is, is located in Chicago, which is his hometown. Mm -hmm. And he said that when he became president of the cheese division, which was their signature main division, that the prices of dairy products went down. Mm. Uh, and excuse me, they went, excuse me, dairy product prices went up. So he raised the prices and all the independent producers raised the prices. 
And then a couple months later, the prices went down and all the independents lowered their prices. But it was written in the bylaws of Kraft, he had no control over it, that they wouldn't lower their prices. Huh. And so in his hometown news, newspapers, they said, heads are going to roll at Kraft for gouging the customer. And he just read that and he went into a funk and he said he was watching television one Sunday and on the television, there was a team, the Cincinnati Bengals, who were recently, they just lost in the Super Bowl, but their last Super Bowl they played in, they had a coach named Sam Weish. And this was two years later, and they went from being in the Super Bowl to losing 10 games straight. And so there is Bob Eckert looking into the television, and the reporter says to uh, Sam Weish, Sam, you're going to be fired on Tuesday. What do you think about that? And Bob said it was as if he was talking to me, Mm -hmm. uh, the coach. And the coach looked out of the television and said, you know I'm going to be fired on Tuesday. I know I'm going to be fired on Tuesday. Everybody knows I'm going to be fired on Tuesday, but that's not important. What's important is what can I do between today, Sunday, and Tuesday to make the Cincinnati Bengals a better team? So what he adopted, and if you're a leader, I think it's great advice, he says, rather than racing ahead to something that may or may not happen, he says, before I go to bed, I will write down yes. what, what can I get done, not do, but what can I get done tomorrow that will make Mattel a better company, that will make Kraft a better company, that will make me a better husband, a better, uh, a better father. And so by writing down what can I get done by the end of tomorrow to advance whatever my roles are, he said, you can change it the following morning, but writing down what you can get done uh, uh, helped calm him and center him. Yeah. I love that. I mean, as a as an inspiring close to this week's episode in our conversation, it's find that one thing, the 1% change that you can make, and then see what actually plays out, because then you can respond to the reality of the situation versus the hypothetical million of parallel universes of what might happen, do something is what I'm hearing. Do something to be the best leader that you can be, the best leader that your team needs, but in doing so, helping your team and organization to be the best version of themselves too. And I would add to that, you and your team, the more that you can do something purposeful and meaningful, it won't take away whatever the traumas or losses you've been through. When I interviewed Diana Handel, who was my co-author in these two wonderful books during Mm -hmm. the pandemic, you know, how did she lead the hospital through the double homicide by an employee of the month and then his suicide? And she said, what really helped us is we came back to our purposeful activity. We were a hospital that served hundreds of people every day. And by our doing something that was purposeful, it didn't eliminate the tragedy, but it made it much more manageable. So if you're a leader, yes, commit yourself to being active. But if you can, do something that is purposeful and meaningful for you and encourage your, uh, encourage your employees and your people to do the same. 
I love it. So, Mark, we mentioned nine books. There's obviously a couple of websites. We talked about the Michelangelo mindset. So where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, I think if they go to my LinkedIn, and I'm going to try to uh, help people do that because I just put up a QR code. If you go there, you can go to my LinkedIn, and I keep that fairly uh, fairly up to date. It's a moving target as I continue to evolve. I have a website, markgoulston.com, um, and I uh, uh, and also my podcast is My Wake Up Call. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. It's in the top 1% of all podcasts globally, and you're going to wow. be on it. I and am. Thank you. <laughs> you go there. Uh, also, uh, my first book was called Get Out of Your Own Way, and uh, that's kind of a Kids, a kid brother or kid sister just listen because that's only in 15 languages. Oh. But we did an audio course at Himalaya.com forward slash defeat. Himalaya.com forward slash defeat. And if you go there, you can get the audio course, which is 13 uh, uh, small audio chapters. And you can, you can subscribe for free and hear it and then unsubscribe. And plus, <laughs> Uh, I also have a methods webinar, uh, and as you well know, methods is the methods of the hundred coaches, and that's up. And uh, you can go there and catch that webinar, which was called "Leading with Surgical Empathy," mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. because that's the process that I used for 25 years as a practicing psychiatrist to reach suicidal patients, and, and none of them died. Uh, and I've named that surgical empathy because uh, here, what I've observed is that when people are under trauma or going through trauma, they don't just attach to their coping behavior. They, it, it, they, it's an adhesive thing. It's like an adhesion in your body. That's why it's so tough to break it because when you connect with those things that helped you survive during a trauma, you didn't just attach, you form an adhesion. And just like a surgical adhesion in the body, you have to go in there sometimes to break those surgical adhesion Mm -hmm. and surgical empathy goes in. And something that people who haven't been suicidal don't know that suicidal people know is that when you're feeling really desperate and suicidal, Death is compassionate to hopelessness. It's like the sirens calling out to the sailors, I'll take away your pain. Mm -hmm. So people who feel really hopeless uh, attach to suicide as a way to take away the pain. So people feel felt by suicide and death taking away the pain. But when they can feel felt by you, not just understood, but felt, they may detach from death is the only way out and attach to feeling felt by you. And when they start to feel felt by another human being, they start to cry. And the crying is their way of letting go of death is their only way out and attaching to feeling felt by you. Wow, a powerful thread and emotion there for a future conversation. Thank you for sharing. 
And I'll make sure all of those contact information is available in the show notes. So if you're listening on the audio version, don't worry about the QR code. We'll make sure that the information so that you can connect with Dr. Goldstone on LinkedIn is available to you as well. Thank you again. I look forward to our next conversation. As do I. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.